Before we begin this episode, we'd like to bring something to your awareness which we at The Yard found out while creating this episode. In Jamaica, historically, the Huse Festival has been held in three parishes, St. Mary, Clarendon, and Westmoreland. However, in recent years, the event has only been held in Clarendon. But for the past three years, it hasn't been held at all. For 2020 and 2021, the issue was COVID restrictions, obviously. However, in 2022, Jamaica, a country which celebrates how diverse its racial population is, the organizers faced the issue of funding, and that affected the planning of the event in 2022. 2022, which was Jamaica's 60th celebration of independence. As such, if anyone has a connection to Luthan Cousins, the Member of Parliament of the area where the festival is held, or the Mayor of Clarendon, Winston Mirage, or the Ministry of Culture, Babsy, Terrellong, and their people to help in the assistance of the festival being held come 2023 by the organisers getting funding, please pressure them. And to you, our listeners, across the Caribbean and the diaspora, we ask, in any way or form, in assisting one of the Indo-Muslim communities of the region. Also note, this episode contains mentions of murder, police brutality, indentureship, and the abuse of women. Upon the arrival of large numbers of Indians to the Caribbean through the indentureship system, they also brought their religion and other aspects of their culture. Their aversion to not assimilating to whiteness was seen as a problem by the colonial governments. And no other event in the 1800s would portray that than the 1884 Jose Massacre in Trinidad, which saw agents of the colonial state, the police, turn their guns on Indians taking part in the annual Jose Festival. The mass population of Indians arriving in the Caribbean through indentureship, which took place after the full emancipation of enslaved Africans, occurred in the British West Indies in 1838. Indentureship was a means for white planters to meet the demand of cheap labor now that slavery has been abolished. The Indians became one of these indentured populations. Historians Juanito and Arthur Niehoff states that the majority of indentured Indians that came to the Caribbean were recruited from northeastern Indians, specifically the United Provinces of Agra and Uttar Pradesh and the adjacent province of Bihar. The largest population of indentured Indians arrived in Guyana, Trinidad, and Jamaica. Over the period of indentureship from 1834 to 1918, 238,909 Indians arrived in Guyana, 143,939 arrived in Trinidad, and 36,412 arrived in Jamaica. And if you're wondering, there's a reason why there is a significant difference in the amount of Indians arriving in Jamaica in comparison to the other larger British territories. As it happens, 
Trinidad and Guyana did not have fully developed plantation economies by 1838 when slavery ended, unlike Jamaica, with a large plantation system which led to the island having the highest sugar output in the British West Indies prior to emancipation. As such, this led to Jamaican soil already being burdened by sugar production, while both Guyana and Trinidad have vast acres of open, fertile land for the British to exploit after emancipation. This allowed for white planters in Guyana and Trinidad to be in a far better position to get the necessary credit to contract East Indian labor compared to that of Jamaica. As such, Jamaica had far less indentured Indians arriving than Guyana and Trinidad. It was this large population of indentured servants, primarily from India and China, that allowed for Guyana and Trinidad to be the leading sugar producers in the Caribbean by 1882, while Jamaican sugar production fell greatly. To note, outside of the big three countries in the British West Indies, Indian indentured servants also settled in other parts of the Caribbean. Between 1834 to 1918, 4,354 arrived in St. Lucia, 3,200 arrived in Grenada, 2,472 in St. Vincent, and 339 in St. Kitts. Specifically to Trinidad and Tobago, the first ship of Indians arrived in Port of Spain carrying 227 Indian persons in 1845, 206 men and 21 women. In her book, Race Relations in Colonial Trinidad, 1870 to 1900, historian Bridget Berreton states, of all the immigrant groups which came to Trinidad during the course of the 19th century, the Indians were immeasurably the most important. As such, from the ports of Calcutta between 1845 to 1917, with a short break in 1848 to 1851, Indians arrived in Trinidad where they were the dominant workers on Trinidad's sugar plantation. By 1872, they made up 75.3% of all workers on Trinidad's sugar plantation, becoming one of the most important populations of Trinidad sugar plantations. From 1862, indentured laborers signed up for a five-year indentureship contract. According to their contract, they could not leave their employer, demand higher wages, or refuse any work given to them. Not abiding by these rules will result in criminal prosecution. An indentured servant was in law subjected to 280 days work per calendar year with five days a week during the growing season and six days during harvesting. An able-bodied worker in the field could spend at least nine hours working while those in the factory worked 15 hour days 
Still, a law was passed in 1872 establishing a minimum wage. But during the 1800s, indentured Indians found their wages falling significantly, with Indians earning far less than the minimum they were to be legally paid. For Indian women, it was even lower. On some estates, a pregnant woman was seen as a debt, and this meant they would not receive wages for a month, even years. Also, many Indian women were subjected to the brutal abuse by estate overseers. This, alongside the lack of infrastructure and resources to sustain the non-white population, created a harsh, unlivable society for indentured servants. To this, historian Dr. Bridget Barreton states, those critics of the system who claimed that indentureship was merely slavery with the jail substituted for the whip were not far from the truth. Then, once the indentureship is up, persons were set free and given a certificate of industrial residence, a sort of free paper, which verified that an individual's indenture has expired and they are free. But former indentured Indians had restrictions placed on them where these same restrictions did not apply to the rest of the population. Even after receiving their free papers, Indians were not entitled to a free return until they had lived in Trinidad for 10 years. Then the colonial government embarked on a land exchange program. In 1869, the governor of Trinidad, Arthur Hamilton Gordon, agreed to grant 25 free Indians portions of crown lands in exchange for their claim to return home. In season five, episode two, the 1859 toll rights of Jamaica, we discussed the politics of crown lands in the British West Indies in the 1800s. Still, in Trinidad, through the land exchange program, the Crown hoped to reduce the financial liability of the government to pay for the return of Indian laborers back home and to settle free Indians near sugarcane plantations, allowing for planters to have a supply of seasonal workers. Then, when more portions of Crown lands became available for purchase later, more Indians had the opportunity to become small landowners. Between 1885 and 1869, 24% of all crown lands were sold to Indians. By 1995, 34% of crown lands were in Indian ownership. And then, by the passing of the 1885 law, establishing that Indians had to pay a portion of the cost to return home, many just decided to settle in Trinidad. These events gave way to the settlement of the Indian community on the island and subsequently the birth of the Trini-born Indian population, a unique population with their own culture, a culture that they refused to give up to please the English government. This would be a problem for the colonial government. Between 1838 and 1905, there were 21 disturbances that took place in the British West Indies. Four of these took place in Trinidad, 
were to involve the Indian community during the Huse festival. Huse, otherwise known as Jahaji or Moharam, is an almost 1,300-year-old Islamic holiday. The holiday is held in the honor of Hussein, grandson of Muhammad the Prophet. Hussein attempted to reclaim the headship of the Muslim empire after the murder of his brother Hassan. But in AD 1680, on his march to Baghdad, Hussein was killed by his rivals. The day of his defeat, the 10th day of Moharram, became the holy day for the Shiites who uphold the legitimacy of Fatima's descendants as successors of the Prophet. That holy day was passed through the centuries and is celebrated every year during Moharram, the first month of the Islamic lunar calendar. Husay generally includes a 10-day fast and prayer period ending with three nights of festivities. In their paper, Husay and its creolization Researchers Ajay Masing and Laxi Masing states that creolization of Muharram in the Caribbean started with a change in its name to Husay the Word, in which Creoles thought they heard repeatedly when the mourners loudly and repeatedly remembered Hussein. As such, when the Indian immigrants, who are of Muslim faith, settled in the Caribbean, they brought their commemoration of Husay to their Indo-Caribbean communities. But at the same point, Husay became engraved in the life of oppressed persons in the Caribbean, especially in Trinidad and Guyana. At Husay celebrations, Hindu and Muslim Indians, as well as Black West Indians, took part in the festival. During the celebrations in the 1800s, Muslim Indians in the Caribbean would recreate the tomb of Hussein, called a Taja. It was usually made out of bamboo, tinsel, and cloth, and Muslim Indians would carry the usually 30 feet high memorial piece during the event. The tomb would then be carried out to sea and drowned, thus signifying the end of the event. Another component of the festival was the stick fights. Stick fights were acted out as it commemorates the military exploits of Hassan and Hussein's lives. However, there were moments where sticks were replaced with cutlasses and this caused concern with the colonial states as violence was prone to break out. Indo-Caribbean historian Dr. Bastio Mangru in his publication Indenture and Abolition, Sacrifice and Survival on the Guyanese Sugar Plantations, states, and I quote, Violence became more widespread when rival Taja processions clashed in the middle of the road, each refusing to give way to the other. It was not uncommon for rival Taja fractions to hire Chinese immigrants, reputed for their best and strongest fighters, to spearhead their encounter. Frequently, the procession blocked the road completely and the participants in their excited and inebriated state would assault estate personnel and travelers who refused to show reverence, end quote. Then, as stated before, Husay celebrations are not only attended by Muslim Indians, but other persons. 
This unification became an issue with the colonial government as one thing history has shown us is that it is better to oppress persons along different racial lines when they are separated. And so it happens that the colonial government would use these squabbles during Jose as an excuse to oppress Indian culture. And as such, it should come as no surprise that the colonial government wanted to ban Jose celebrations in Trinidad. Still, this is not the first time that Trinidad's colonial government had issues with celebrations organized by the Indian community. Firepass, a South Indian festival, was celebrated by the Madrasi Indians since 1868 at Peru village near Port of Spain. This festival includes the walking over of hot coals and this was one of the factors in which it attracted great publicity all over Trinidad. But by the 1870s, the press criticized the festival, labeling it as a degrading practice carried on by a gang of semi-barbarians. One editor of a newspaper even went as far as to say that he regretted that the police have not thought proper to interfere with the scandal doings of the coolies which go to show their local ignorance of civilization. By the early 1800s, restrictions were placed on fire pass to discourage the celebration. Then following the carnival riots of Trinidad in 1881, caused by a result of colonial police under orders from the colonial government, where persons protests in response to restrictions placed on carnival, the colonial authorities turned their sights to Jose. The Hamilton Report of 1881, which states that the restrictions should be placed on Jose celebrations to prevent a repeat of the carnival riots, added to this. Later in 1881, an Indian was killed during a disturbance between Indians of different estates. And it was then that steps were put in place to curb Husay and other Indian celebrations. In 1882, the Festival Ordinance of 1882-1884 Amendment was brought into effect, where the sword stick or haka used during the stick fights were banned. In 1884, strict restrictions were placed on the Jose Festival, and as you might have guessed, this did not go down well with Trinidad's Indian community. As Dr. Mangu states, For Indians who participated in Jose, the festival was more than a religious observation, but an act of resistance against the feeling of helplessness and dependence as a result of their experience as indentured laborers. On July 30th, 1884, the colonial authorities implemented Indians for taking part in Jose by restricting persons from entering Port of Spain and San Fernando and from going along any public highway. Still, around midday on the 30th of October, Indians who celebrated Jose attempted to enter San Fernando. Of all accounts, there are around 8,000 persons approaching the town to attend the event. As they approached the entrance, there stood police officers who were under command of the Inspector General of Trinidad's Constabulary, Captain Arthur Wybro Baker. From his approach in 1880, 
Captain Baker had a reputation for his zero-tolerance approach to Trinidad's lower class. As such, when participants were 100 feet or less away from the barricades to enter the town, they were met with a hail of bullets by the colonial police at its entrances. As the crowd failed to disperse, 17 persons were killed and 98 wounded. Documentation of the event naming those who were murdered were compiled by Dr. Kenneth Parmasan. Jagannath, Jildari, Manu, Iman Khan, Shadi, Nebebokos, Difan, Modit, Amir Khan, Ramnath, Jongli, Shedar, Abdul Kunia, Sital, Ramgolam, Shautonik, Shauta. The then governor of Jamaica, Sir Henry Norman, was sent to Trinidad to oversee the inquiry. In his report, he states that the precautions taken to stop the procession entering San Fernando were appropriate, that the sergeant of police who, at the request of magistrates, gave the order to file, did so with coolness, and that the magistrates did all their power to persuade the coolies not to enter the town. In summary, the brutality of the police and subsequent murder of Indians were justified. Norman ended his report by stating that regulations on Hussein were justifiable and Indians must adhere to them. He effectively cleared the governor of Trinidad, Sir Sanford Freeling, from all blame, who was eventually transferred to another British colony. As such, despite the tragedy of 1884, the colonial powers enforce even more regulations against Hussein come 1885. And since one of the objectives of the 1884 regulation was to discourage other races from attending the festival, many blacks in Trinidad stopped attending Hussein and eventually withdrew from the festival altogether. Today, the Muslim Indian community in Trinidad still takes part in the Hussein celebrations not only in Trinidad, but across the Caribbean, most notably Guyana, Suriname, and Jamaica. A 1995 documentary by John Bishop and Frank J. Corum showcases the preparation undertaken by Trinis during the Jose Festival. One Trini in particular was spotlighted as he takes great care in the construction of a tajo. Jose even had an impact on Trinidad Carnival, one of the most spectacular events in the world. According to Frank J. Corum in his book, Jose Trinidad, Muharram Performances in an Indo-Caribbean Diaspora, states that as early as 1878, there are journalistic reports of the Kuli Hus, the Taja at Carnival. Over the years, Jose floats have appeared at events during Trinidad's carnival season. Still, the Jose Massacre of 1884 is one of the many instances of Caribbean history where the resistance of oppressed West Indians were seen as an annoyance by colonial institutions. In the case of the massacre, that annoyance translated to murder, 
The victims of the massacre were buried in the local Paradise Cemetery, which today lies near the San Fernando Central Market. In her article, What Happened During the 1884 Hussein Massacre in the Caribbean, Jessica Ayaharn states, As the market continues to flourish, their graves hidden under years of history, perhaps we can instead celebrate the diversity and strength that came out of such a brutal time in history and hope that they will all be dutifully rewarded in the end.